Got quiet. We're ready. Okay. Um, Can you, if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 21. Um, This is the last chapter in this gospel. And we're going to look at the whole thing this morning. So we've got a lot of work to do. Um, AJ just prayed. I want to pray as well before we we jump into it. Uh, Heavenly Father, we we do thank you for this morning. Thank you that, that we can be together as your church. Um, we thank you for your word, and as we turn our attention to it, we pray that um, our eyes and ears will be open to see and hear new things um, from your word, Lord. Uh, we pray that as we walk out of here this afternoon, um, that we would, uh, we would be changed, Lord, that we would not be the same people that walked in. Uh, we pray that you would do this through your your spirit. We pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we do find ourselves in the final chapter of John's gospel this morning, and indeed our final week in this great book. Um, now, if you've been paying attention last week, you'd be forgiven if you read the end of chapter 20, the last two verses, and thought that John was done. If you have your Bible open, take a look at it. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That sounds like the end, right? Close up the book, end of the story. But there's one more chapter which raises the question, why do we need this final chapter? What's it for? We need this chapter because we need to answer a really important question. This gospel story, the story of the cross and the resurrection, how far does it reach? What does it mean for me tomorrow or two years from now or 20 years from now? Can it reach me wherever I go? Can it reach me when I've done that thing that I said I'd never do? Can it reach me when I look in the mirror of my life and all I can see is shame and regret and brokenness, even even after years of being a follower of Jesus? So how does Jesus deal with us when we've messed up? That's what this final chapter is looking to answer. Because if the Gospel of John, if if it were a film, we'd have reached the 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 conclusion of the main plot. Right? It's all sorted out. But there's one minor subplot that needs resolving in the last couple minutes. Peter. Right? If you've been with us, you know what happened to Peter. Right? Think back a couple weeks. It's, it's the Last Supper. Jesus explains the bread and, and the wine and, and that someone would betray him. And, and literally, one verse later, the disciples begin to argue about who among themselves is the greatest. And then Jesus turns to Peter and and says, listen, Peter, Satan has asked me to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you, Peter. He didn't say no. He said yes. But I prayed for you, Peter. So listen, Peter, when you repent, follow me. Turn to me again. Strengthen your brothers. And Simon Peter, hearing that, says, Lord, I'm ready to die with you. And Jesus responds, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll deny me three times. 
right? And you know what happens. Listen, I, th- I think historically the, the church has been guilty of turning Peter into a bit of a caricature, right? Oh, Peter, what a fool, right? All heart, no head. And so we kind of poke fun at the dramatic irony of a proud Peter claiming a steadfast faith just hours before it would all crumble down like a house of cards, when the reality is that you and me were just like him, aren't we? Right? But it's easier to pretend like we've got it all together. And so the story goes on. Jesus is confronted in the garden, and Peter pulls out a knife, right, ready to, to defend Jesus, takes off an earlobe. He's got zeal, but it's zeal for what he thinks Jesus is all about, not what Jesus is actually about. And so Jesus heals this, this young man. He tells Peter off, and he's arrested. And Peter, a little less excited now, follows at a distance. And outside the high priest's house in the middle of the night, Peter's warming himself by a fire, and he's confronted. Hey, you know him. I've seen you with him, haven't I? You're, you're one of his followers. And he denies it. He vigorously denies it. Once, twice, three times. He starts swearing. I don't know him. And at once the rooster crows and Peter goes off and the gospels record for us that he wept bitterly. So we come back to this question, why this chapter? We need this chapter to see how Jesus treats flawed and broken people like you and like me. How the gospel handles us when we don't live up to even our own expectations. Right? I'll, I'll die with you, Jesus, Peter said. How does Jesus deal with people that have had an encounter with him, who've followed him, who've made great promises, who had good intentions, but for one reason or another have fallen into to sin or shame or apathy or maybe just the life of distraction? So I want, I want to walk through this chapter this morning by looking at three questions. What do we do when we fail? What does Jesus do when we fail? And what does life after failure look like? So first, what do we do when we fail? Really, this question, how I respond to failure, this drives to the core of what you and I believe. Right? What's our tendency when we've messed up? What do we turn to? Or what don't we turn to? Look at verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So listen, the last time that we saw Peter specifically in the Gospels, he was running to the tomb with John. Remember, John pointed out that he got there first. Now, the reason that they're running to the tomb is that the two Marys had gone to the tomb, Mark records for us. They went there very early in the morning, and they they find, of course, the tomb is empty. And instead of Jesus, there's an angel. And in Mark 16, the angel says to the Marys, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they've laid him. But go, tell his disciples... And Peter. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Go tell the disciples and Peter. 
we're not done with him. Right? Jesus isn't done with Peter yet. The boys are getting back together in Galilee where it all started. And Peter, you need to be there. So that's why he's here in Galilee with the disciples. And we know that Peter must have been around before this moment, right? Because Jesus has appeared to the disciples as a group. But Peter isn't mentioned specifically in those encounters. And so I wonder how he's handling things, right? He used to be the guy right up at the front. But I wonder if maybe he's at the back now, a little quieter, a little bit more subdued. You know, do the others know about it? What have they been saying? Whatever he's dealing with, Peter listens and he goes with the followers of Jesus back to Galilee. So they're, they're back where it all started, away from, from the chaos of Jerusalem in the very area where he had spent years following Jesus. And I think Peter's mind must have drifted back to those first days, probably even to the day when Jesus first called him to himself. Maybe you remember the story. Luke's gospel tells it to us like this. Luke says, One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, that's Peter, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it's deeper and let, your nets, let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all, all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. I think there's an edge there from Peter. If you say so, carpenter man, we'll put the nets out one more time. We fished all night, didn't catch anything. Mark continues, this time, their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, what did he say? Hey, Jesus, come back next week. Do this again. We'll set up a little thing here. Cut you in at 20%, right? Little deal. No. He fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. Get away from me. Which is not an uncommon response to holiness. I can't stand you. I can't be in your presence. Peter realizes what and who he is dealing with. And that's his response. He wants to get away. But rather than listening to Peter, Jesus calls him to himself. And the call is simple. He says, Peter, follow me and I'll show you how to fish for people. Put down your nets. Follow me. Walk away from the boat, walk away from the nets, and I'm going to show you a new life, a new way. No more fish, Peter, people. And he does. But so much time has passed between that moment, some three years ago, and where we find Peter this morning. So back in chapter 21, the disciples, they're in Galilee, waiting for Jesus to appear again. And what does Peter do? Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. 
They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I'm going fishing. What's going on here? A few years ago, I heard someone explain it like this. He said, if I told you that I'm going to go play basketball, you know what I mean. I'm going to go grab a ball. I might go down to the rec center or elementary school if I want the shorter hoops. But do you remember March 18th, 1995? Any basketball fans here? Big day. Michael Jordan, after his unfortunate little experiment in Major League Baseball, put out a press release. It's just two words. I'm back. Back to where? We all know where he's back to, right? This is Peter. This is, this is Peter, the fisherman. I'm going fishing. He's going fishing. This isn't you fishing at the cabin in the summer. These are professional fishermen. He's going back to what he knows. You know how I know that? They went out and they fished all night. That's not fun. Is it wrong what he's doing? I, I don't know. It's not, like, it's not necessarily disobedient. Some commentators kind of argue over whether Peter's disobeying God in doing this. But here's what I do know. Jesus had given the disciples instructions. Remember last week, he said to the disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. You've got work to do. The gospel needs to go out to the end of the earth. And now Peter and six other disciples are out fishing. What do we do when we fail? I think a lot of us, we go back to what we know, right? We go back to what feels safe. And so Peter is here and he says, you know, guys, I'm just going to be over here fishing. I think a lot of us settle into a life like that, right? We get busy with life, busy with work, busy with family. That's what a lot of us, I think, do to block out the shame of the past, to try to quiet that voice of condemnation, a life of distraction, a life of other things, all in an effort to avoid a confrontation with the truth of who we are. Zach Eswine, talking about Peter, he put it like this. He said, failure pokes the tender ribs of our memory makes us wins. Too many storms sinking, you'll never wash my feet, miscalculations in our faith. Too many, though everyone else forsakes you, I never will, debacles of our pride. Too many, you'll never go to the cross, get behind me, Satan, moments to count. Too many, too many Gethsemane sword, blood-cut misapplications of zeal. Too many, I tell you, I don't know the man, betrayals and fears. So Peter takes a look at all this and just says, man, I, I don't know how to deal with, with all this, so I'm just going to go back to what I know. I'm going to put off doing what the Lord expressly said that I should be about. I want you to notice something. Like maybe, this, maybe that resonates with where you're at this morning. Peter is a follower of Jesus. This is happening after years of knowing him, following his ministry, sitting with him, listening to his teaching, proclaiming him as the Christ. He was the first one to do that. 
Listen, the Christian life isn't always a linear journey of progressively becoming more and more like Jesus, success after success after success. Right? It's a lot of this. But here's here's the good news. In spite of our inconsistencies, in spite of our failings, Jesus is faithful to come and meet us wherever we are, which leads us to our second question. What does Jesus do when we failed, when we've messed up? He shows up. Look at verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? He knows they don't have any fish. They've been fishing all night. Jesus comes to find them. He's walking on the shore. He's at a distance. He calls out to them. They don't know who it is. Children, some translations have this as brothers or fellows, but it's actually diminutive, right? It's what a father might call to his kids in the yard. Boys, do you have any fish? I'm fairly confident there's a hint of playfulness here, a hint of sass, right? Look at how they respond. They answered him. No. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in. Sounds familiar. Because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. Right? Remember the story of when Jesus first called Peter? Peter wanted to get as far away from Jesus as he possibly could. He said, Lord, get away from me. And what do we have here? John, John sees that it has to, be, has to be Jesus. Peter, we've seen this before. He's doing the thing again. Right? And Peter wants to, want, he has to get to Jesus. So he throws himself into the sea. What's, what's changed about Peter? Well, he understands the gospel, right? And what this shows us is that anytime you've met the real Jesus, you can know because it's going to produce an extreme reaction. Get away from me or I'm throwing myself into the sea because I got to get to you. Never just the low level interest. You see, the reason that that Peter is able to move toward him this time, is that Peter suddenly understood the gospel for the first time. And what is the gospel? The gospel says that the determining factor in my relationship with the Father is his past, not my past. Not my record, but his record. You see, if you build your life, you build your self-image and your worth on the idea that you're good enough, that you're together enough, the second that you you're forced to come face to face with the reality of your failings and your shortcomings, and they're brought to light, you'll say to Jesus, but you'll say to everybody else too, get away from me. Depart from me. The mark that you've embraced the message of the cross is that you understand that Jesus came for you, for you, for all of you, all the parts of you, the parts that you don't want other people to know about. He looked at it all and still came for you to be your savior. And when you truly know that, you'll drop everything. You'll jump out of the boat like a fool and you'll, you'll swim to him. And so Peter, even though he's, he's basically naked in the boat, he puts on his clothes, which is kind of backwards. 
leaps into the water and swims to shore. You know, John, ever rational, is like Peter put on his coat, threw himself into the sea, even though we were only like 100 yards away, right? The rest of us just kind of rowed five times and arrived and then struggled with the nets. Thanks, Peter. You see, if you have a relationship with Jesus, when you fail, and you will, you know that he stands on the shore waiting for you. And like a child running into her father's arms, you throw yourself into the sea with abandon because you know deep down that there's nothing, nothing that can ever separate you from his love. That's why I love Peter. Don't you love his response? It's the power of the grace of the gospel made visible for us. So Peter gets to the shore, and where do you think his eyes go? If this is a film, again, like, where does the camera go? What's the close-up shot? He sees verse 9, Jesus has made a charcoal fire. Now that word, charcoal fire, there's lots of words for fire, but that word for charcoal fire only shows up twice in the whole Bible. Both of them are in the book of John. The first is when Peter sits and warms himself by a charcoal fire while Jesus is on trial. The very place of his shame, the very place of his brokenness, here. The second is right now. Now, obviously, John is connecting these two moments, right? And I think as a a literary device, it's, it's beautiful. There's a beautiful kind of connection there that these two moments are connected. But I wonder what led John to include it. This narrative detail, the charcoal fire. Maybe it was Peter. I wonder if Peter, in the years that followed, maybe recalled this whole scene, what was happening in his heart as he walked, dripping with water from the lake and onto the shore. Man, John, you wouldn't be- it looked just like the fire that night. What must be going on in Peter as he walks up? Think about it. It's the absolute height of drama. On one hand, it's the joy of seeing his Savior, his friend. It's the Lord. And he's done this miracle again. He's here. But how is he going to deal with me? Is he going to chew me out? Maybe I should have stayed in the boat. Maybe I should have stayed at the back. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. How does Jesus treat you and me and Peter when we screwed up? He makes a meal. Fish, bread, communion, restoration. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Now, the interesting thing about that verb that John just used there, that Peter hauled the fish ashore, it's the exact verb that John used when he recorded that Jesus had said that no one is able to come to me unless they are drawn to me or hauled to me. The same in in chapter 12. When I'm lifted up from the earth, Jesus said, I will draw, I will haul all men to me. That's interesting. Scholars have debated the number of fish 153 of them, and why it's so specific. Here's what uh, Sinclair Ferguson said. Get ready for some math. The number of fish has fascinated Christian scholars over the centuries, partly because 153 is one of those strange mathematical numbers. 
you add up every number from 1 to 17, and you get 153. Some of the ancient commentators went wild on what this might mean, and how if you put those numbers into a triangular forum, you get an equilateral triangle, and how the baseline is 17, which is 3 times 3 plus 1 plus 7, full of all kinds of perfect and interesting numbers. He says, I think the reason it's here in John's gospel is that the fish they caught in the net numbered 153. That's the point. There are 153 fish. These are fishermen. They pay attention to how many fish there are because they're going to take them and sell them. Peter hauls them in. It's almost like an enacted parable. Peter, this is your life now. Not the fish, the hauling. You're going to be hauling in souls for the Lord, a fisher of men and women. Some weeks later, Peter would find himself once again staggered at the catch when he would return to Jerusalem away from the boats and preach a sermon to thousands with boldness, empowered by the Spirit of God, drawing in, hauling in thousands. So they bring the fish in. Verse 11, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. What does Jesus do for his disciples? They've been out all night. He makes them breakfast. Who do you eat breakfast with? Not a trick question. You eat breakfast with people that you like. I don't think I've ever had breakfast with anyone I don't like. He's kind. He's gentle. The relationship is still open. He serves them. Verse 13, Jesus came and he took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So that's what he's always been doing, right? They're exhausted. They've been out all night working. Tired to the point of collapse, probably. He prepares a meal for them, gives them bread and fish to eat. This same Jesus who washed their feet, who sat with them and patiently taught them again and again, who took on the role of servant, who humbled himself, right? Went to the cross to serve. Jesus here, still providing for their most basic need as they sit on the sand, on the rocks, exhausted, weary from their efforts, their futile efforts. And that's what he does with you and with me. I find myself again and again coming to the conclusion that Peter came to in in chapter 6 of this gospel. You remember the the crowd, this is early on, the crowds are leaving Jesus because of the the hardness of his teaching. And Jesus turns to his disciples and said, are are you going to go too? Are you leaving? And Peter Answers for the group, Lord, to whom would we go? Where else would we go? You have the, eternal, the words of eternal life. Where else would we go, Crossridge? Who else so fully and surely meets the deepest needs of our hearts like Jesus does? Right? See him on the shore, meeting his disciples, feeding them, caring for them. What does Jesus do when we fail? Well, he extends grace to us. He says, come and eat. But then he says, hey, we got to talk. 
we got to deal with this. And so he takes Peter aside and they have what I would say is probably the, the single most important conversation of Peter's life. Because you see, it had to be dealt with. Imagine the level of shame. We sing that song, How Deep the Father's Love. Right? Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. And, and what those lyrics do, or what they're supposed to do, is they help to bring us to the re- realization that the cross, the sin and the shame that was punished there, that was my sin. That, in a way, I was there. right? Because I need help to remember that, in a very real sense, I was there. I participated. But Peter... He doesn't need a song. He doesn't need help to get to that moment in history. He was there. He knows what he was doing. He knows the role that he played that night. And every single morning, the rooster crows in and around Jerusalem, a reminder of his shame. Every fire that he walks past, every olive grove that he walks past, there it is. And so Jesus, the great physician, needs to operate because he needs to save Peter from a life of shame and regret and neglect of the call, the specific call on his life. And so Jesus is going to address what happened. He's going to talk about it because we got to talk about it. And so he takes Peter for a walk away from the group. We know he doesn't do this in front of everybody. We know this because verse 20 tells us that John was following them. Listen to verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I used to kind of struggle with with that a little bit, reading that, because like it's very clearly a connection to the three times that Peter denies Christ, right? Three do you love me's correspond to three denials. And honestly, depending on the tone, it could read a little aggressive. Do you love me, Peter? But what's Jesus doing here? Look at the instruction that he gives Peter. He's looking forward. He's not looking back. Do you love me? Tend my sheep in the future. Get to work. I have a a place for you, a role for you. He's not looking back. He's not saying, hey, hey, Peter, Do you really still think that you love me more than the other disciples now? Peter, I know that you love me, Peter. Really? It sure didn't seem like it a couple weeks ago, Peter. Right? That's not what he's doing. He's he's releasing Peter from the bondage of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame that he doesn't need to carry because Jesus carried it all to the cross. You notice what he calls them. Simon... Son of John. That's his old name. Jesus had given him a new name. Peter. But now he's calling him Simon. It's as if he's taking him back. Back to where they began. Right? We've got to start this thing over, Peter. 
back to that first flash of Peter's devotion to Jesus, where it all emerged. The full name comes out. He says to Peter very slowly, very clearly, very specifically, very deliberately. You see, there's no hurry, no rush in what Jesus is doing here. There's no cheap grace or cheap forgiveness when Jesus really fully restores. Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's exactly what Peter had said, right? They'll all desert you, Lord, but, uh, but I'll never desert you. Do you love me more than these, Peter? And interestingly, Peter only says, Lord, you know that I love you. He doesn't say, Lord, you know that I love you more than the rest of them. There's a newfound humility here. So Peter was grieved when Jesus asked him the third time. It hurts, right? We, we need to understand that repentance and restoration, if it's real, is going to hurt. It's going to involve the painful process of getting back to where you started with the Lord. It's very sore. It's very painful. C.S. Lewis imagined it like this in Mere Christianity. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? It hurts. The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting in an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. You know, when Jesus restores you, you wouldn't have it any other way. You wouldn't want a quick fix. Right? You wouldn't want him to kind of just do an okay job. Right? You would want him to be a slow-moving and effective surgeon, making sure that he's doing deep, life-giving heart work that would make a permanent change. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn that captures this so well. He said, kind of reads like a prayer. He said, Oh, Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I have sinned. Yet once again, I seek thy face. Open thine arms and take me in. And freely my backslidings heal and love the faithless sinner still. Thou knowest the way to bring me back, my fallen spirit to restore. Oh, for thy truth and mercy's sake, forgive and bid me sin no more the ruins of my soul repair and make my heart a house of prayer. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for Peter here. Thou knowest the way to bring me back, my fallen spirit to restore. He's restoring him. And so that leads us to our final question as we close this morning. What does life after failure look like? Or maybe the more important question is this, is there life after failure? I think often in our day, there isn't, right? There's no room for failed people, for problematic people, for people who've messed up, right? I'm not saying that about like outside of the church. I'm saying that inside the church. There's no room for people that have screwed up. 
The gospel looks at failed people and doesn't do what the world does. It doesn't condemn and shame and cancel. But hear this. It also doesn't overlook or minimize wrongdoing and moral failure and sin and just say, well, as long as you say you're sorry, it's all good. You see, the gospel doesn't condemn you and say you're beyond grace, but it also doesn't sweep things under the rug. It deals with them. It exposes them. It exposes the the truth. You see, because of the the reality of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we can with confidence bring our sin into the light, expose it for what it is, and receive forgiveness and restoration and, and the assurance of the love of God. And we're meant to do that work in the community with other believers with the hope that the power of the gospel is infinitely more powerful than my failings. And so because of this, a life after failure looks like a life that's given over to the Lord and his plans for me, right? A life that's obedient to what I've been called to. No more fish, Peter, people. That's his call, right? Look at verse 18. Jesus lays out the path that Peter's going to walk. He says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, right, Peter? You used to have agency and independence and strength. You used to jump in and jump ahead a lot, Peter. But Peter, you're going to learn to take up your cross and follow. Peter, he says, when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. John adds in, this he said to him, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. John points out for us that Jesus was giving Peter a pretty terrifying vision of what was next for him. A very real insight into his future, that he would one day stretch out his own hands on a cross, just like his Savior. Except that church history records for us that Peter refused to be crucified right side up and was crucified upside down because he didn't count himself worthy to die in the same way that Jesus died. You think about that. Peter, who once rashly claimed that he would, I'll stay with you to the end, Jesus. I die with you, Jesus. He would eventually do that very thing. But not through bold promises and proud proclamations of his own faith, but through humbly submitting himself to Jesus' simple instructions. Follow me, Peter. But I love this. John makes it clear that Peter still has a lot of work to do. Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, which is how we know that Peter, uh, John is following Peter and Jesus. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus is telling him, hey, this is, this is your future. This is what's going to happen. Peter's like, uh, what about him? Right? That's what my kids do. What about him? Right? Well, Jesus has, has fully restored Peter. He's got work to do. 
like all of us, right? He's looking over his shoulder. What about him? Jesus said to him, verse 22, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. What's that to you, Peter? You follow me. Jesus, ever patient, redirects him. Listen, Peter, we're talking about you right now. We're talking about you. How often are we tempted to compare the journey, the path that we're walking to other people, to those around us? What about him? What about her? No, you follow me, Jesus says. Because the path that the Lord has called you to walk is not the path that he's called me to walk. You follow me. You follow me, he says. Which are the final words of Jesus in John's gospel. It's a command. Follow me. Which, as we close out this series, is a word that we need to take with us. Follow me. John continues... And he explains, he says, So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple, John, was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. So the gospel ends with one final sentence. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I think you can really only appreciate that statement when you've worked your way through the Gospel of John like we have. Because you you come to appreciate the treasure that it is, that this is. The, The insights that we have, the pictures, the moments, the snapshots. Through the eyes of John, who saw these things unfold, these moments of Emmanuel, God, with us. And in some ways, we come to the end of this gospel, and like the end of any great book, you finish, and there's a tinge of grief because it's done. Right? But John gives us glad news at at the end. There's a sequel. There's a lot of sequels. What he says is we can never actually come to the end of knowing and loving and serving the Lord Jesus Christ because it's not the end. It's actually just the beginning of knowing him, right? Where, where all the things he, he did to be written down, the books would fill the cosmos. You see, we've barely scratched the surface. We've barely had a taste. In fact, those books, like John says, if all that he did were written down, it would fill the world. He's continuing to do things, right? In the the global church and in this room, right? Because people like Peter and John and the apostles and then 2,000 years of, of Christians have been quietly and faithfully obedient to the final instruction of Jesus. Follow me, he says. Follow me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your gospel, um, and in particular, this this book of John. We thank you for the last um, however long we've been working our way through it. Um, We thank you for what it's it's done in our hearts and in our minds as we've looked at it. We pray as we 
um, even reflect on what we've read this morning, Lord, that you would you'd move in our hearts and in our minds to, to convict us, to, to draw us closer to yourself. Lord, I, I pray for anyone that, that's feeling like Peter this morning. Um, Lord, would you give them, give us the assurance of your love for us. Lord, that you, whatever it is, Lord, that you continue to stand on the shore, ready and waiting for us. Lord, we thank you for your grace, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.